I'm Christina Bryan Fitzgibbons, a genetic and family investigator. And I'm Jody Klugman Rabb, a licensed marriage and family therapist and licensed professional clinical counselor. Welcome to Sex Lies and the Truth. Today on the podcast, we meet Tiffany, a woman with three fathers, many new siblings, and a lot of loss. You'll recognize many consistent themes with other MPE stories and a new development we haven't heard much of yet, breaking up. I was born in Atlanta in 1982, and the story of my birth was that I was Barbara and Ken's daughter. They had wanted to have a child for a long time, and and then I, I resulted. And unfortunately for me, when I was two, Ken, my first father, was diagnosed with colon cancer. He died, and my mom remarried. She remarried when I was eight to a man named John who ended up adopting me and raised me. And I always knew, of course, that I was not his biological daughter because my mom had married him when I was eight. So I was there for the wedding and I was the maid of honor. And it was really nice to to have a father figure again because I have probably four memories of my first father, Ken, and they're not all happy just because of of the nature of how he died and everything that goes along with with having cancer. It was hard having an adopted father because I still felt a sense of loyalty to my first father, Ken. And just for purposes of clarity, not because I don't love anyone, I will refer to them as (laughs) Ken and John, just because it, it gets hard to transition between father figures. So I always felt this lingering connection to Ken because even though he was not around because he died, I knew that he was my biological father. And so it was easy to see how I was similar to my mom. We look a lot alike. We have brown hair. We have similar facial features. And all throughout my childhood, my teenage years, even as an adult, people will say, oh my gosh, you guys look like you could be sisters. You look exactly like each other. And I always thought that was super cool. Like my mom is awesome. And I always told her, well, you know, we do look a lot alike, but you're definitely the prettier version of me. (laughs) You got the better nose and you got the better smile. And I definitely see how we're alike, but, um, you know, I wish I was a little bit more like you. But the weird thing for me was that I would tell my mom, isn't it strange how I look more like John than I do Ken? Because John had brown hair and John had hazel eyes like I do. And Ken had blue eyes and blonde hair and perfect nose. And, you know, just my nose will come up repeatedly. He was just this incredibly handsome man. And his parents, my grandmother and my granddaddy, like people will look at their pictures today and just say, oh my gosh, they could have been models or movie stars, just, you know, truly beautiful people. And I would look at pictures of my mom and Ken and think, Where did I come from? Tiffany was confused about how she could come from two people who looked the way they did. But it wasn't born from feeling anything was off about her parentage. She had problems with self-esteem and body issues that made her feel something was wrong with her. There's a manufacturing defect in here somewhere, and that's why I don't see myself reflected in these pictures of this person or in my grandmother. You know, I love... John, who adopted me, he he was a fantastic father. We had a lot in common in terms of like type A personalities, but or I knew I was not, you know, his biological daughter. So I, throughout my childhood, I would try to find ways to sort of connect to this man that I thought was my father. Like when I played softball, I would think about how my, how Ken was this great baseball player and that those were the stories I heard. And I took horseback riding lessons in high school and everyone had always told me that Ken was amazing with horses. And so I, I tried to find ways to connect with this person that I never got to meet, but whose connection to me was still important to me nonetheless. As I approached my 30s, doctors started telling me, you've got to start getting colonoscopies. You know, this is... This is super important for you because your father died of colon cancer at 36. You've got to, you got to stay on top of this. This is super dangerous. So before I even had children myself with my husband, I said, I want to make sure that I don't have any colon cancer because I don't want to bring a child into this world and end up 
dying and leaving them half of an orphan, essentially. And every time I would go in for one, I would just be a basket case. Even after I had kids and after they came back clear, I mean, I would just be terrified every time. Like, oh my gosh, this is going to be, this is going to be the time they're going to see something and what's going to happen. And every time I had an upset stomach or, or something weird would happen with one of my kids with their digestive system, I would freak out and say, we have a history of colon cancer. And, and do you think it could be colon cancer? I mean, it was this real like anxiety in my life. That would have seemed a perfect time <laughs> to maybe tell me the truth, but it didn't happen. The truth never seems to happen for MPEs when it should. And there appear to be many reasons for this. Because frankly, when is there ever really a good time to disclose these situations? The thinking around this needs to change. Instead of finding the best time, look for the least worst time, and then make room for anger, sadness, confusion, and anything else. All that is made worse when the opportunities come and go, and there's still no disclosure. Trust us, we know. As I approached my 36th birthday, that, that was a big moment for me. It was important to me and also sad to me as I got closer to 36 that I'm about to outlive my biological father. Like that's so heartbreaking and awful and messed up. And he was an only child. And my granddad, his father died about a year after he did. So after they were gone, my grandmother was kind of left on her own. And we became very close. I mean, she, she was such a huge part of my life. And when I was 35, she was diagnosed with dementia. And so we had to move her out of, out of her house and into assisted living. And when I say we, I mean me, because I was a power of attorney and two family friends that were also powers of attorney. So 35, working mom, three kids, it was already really tough to, to set aside the time to have to sort of step into a parental role almost for for my grandmother who had had been very parental in, in certain ways towards me throughout my life. And part of moving her out was to go through this house that she'd lived in for 40 years. So it was just filled with mementos from her life and from my first father's life. And I remember just sitting on the floor of his former bedroom because I had taken it upon myself to be the one that was going to clean out his former bedroom and his closets and stuff. And just crying as I found things that had belonged to him, like scrapbooks that he'd made as a child, his notebooks from college, and, and just things that he had made and things that he had written. And I felt like for the first time, I was really getting to get close to this biological father that I had never been able to really bond with because of life circumstances. And it was just very emotional for me. And the most emotional part was when I found these three paintings that had been shoved up onto this shelf in his closet. Because from the moment I could hold a pencil or a crayon when I was younger, I wanted to be an artist. That was my thing. I wanted to be an artist. I would wake up every morning on the weekends, sit on my bedroom floor and draw and paint. And my family moved around a good bit when I was a child. And the place where I would find solace when I didn't have friends because I was the new kid would either be in the pages of a book or sitting in the art classroom. And as I got to high school, that became my my career goal was I wanted to go to art school and I was encouraged to go to art school by my art teacher. And I always asked my parents when we were living in a new town, can I please take art lessons? I really want to take art lessons. And I was the shy, introverted kid. So my dad, John, would always say, no, you need to be on a sports team making friends. I don't want you huddled up in a quiet room any more than you are. So it was this part of myself that my parents encouraged to an extent but they didn't quite encourage it to the point that I wanted them to because they saw it as sort of like another excuse to not socialize with other kids. In high school, Tiffany told her parents she wanted to attend art school for college and was met with a flat refusal. It must not have been part of what they considered a successful career choice. But all through her life, Tiffany wondered where the drive to create came from. Clearly not the two parents before her, 
one an adoptive father and the other a biological mother not understanding the passion her daughter felt or possessing any of the skill herself. So when I was going through my grandmother's house and I found these paintings that my first father had done, you know, they were pretty good. And I was shocked to find them. And I I remember I immediately called my mom and I said, why didn't you ever tell me he did paintings? Ken had been in an accident in high school. He was in a boating accident that paralyzed part of his body and it was incredibly debilitating. He almost died from it. And my mom said, oh, well, I didn't know he was an artist. He must have done those things before his accident. And I said, well, mom, you know, I bet, I bet this is the answer. I bet that that's why I'm so good at art because he was, look, I mean, he did these. So that was on like a Monday and come Friday of that week, I stopped at my mom and dad's house. And my mom said, look, I gotta, I gotta tell you something. Um, there's something that I've wanted to tell you for a long time. And I think you should know. And I don't want you to find out any other way. So she sat me down <laughs> at the kitchen counter. And, you know, I'm, I'm already thinking like, oh my God, you know, uh, I'm already going through a rough period in my life right now. Like, what are you about to lay on me? And she says, you know that Ken, your first dad, was in a very bad accident when he was a teenager. And, you know, he almost died. And it was just, it really destroyed uh a lot of his body. And she said, I don't know if that's the cause, but when we were trying to have a baby, we went through years and years of, of struggles. And finally we went to a doctor and they said that we would need to use a sperm donor. The doctor told us that we should go home and have intercourse after we did the procedure, but we did use a sperm donor. And I mean, my job just like, dropped. And I just remember sitting at the counter and it was like the whole room went went white around me and feelings of vertigo, like I'm falling backwards and everything is spinning. And I just said, so you're telling me that my biological father was a sperm donor? And she said, yes. Although I've always hoped that, you know, maybe you were his because we don't really know for sure. And she said, but you know, the doctor's office that we used here in Atlanta, they only use donors that were students at Emory University. So at least you come from a, an Emory University graduate. <laughs> I'm thinking like, is this a consolation prize? Amazingly, mom took our advice. She barreled right in there and dropped it like it's hot. No biggie. Sensing she may have shocked Tiffany, mom offers up the donor's pedigree, an Emory grad. It seems a popular way to make rent for young guys or med students. Unsurprisingly, this part of his resume didn't soften the blow, and then Tiffany began thinking of her sister, a half-sister from her mom's marriage to John. We never called each other half-sister or anything. She's just my sister. And she actually happened to be home at the time, and I remember she came downstairs and she said, wait a minute, Tiffany never knew this? You're only telling Tiffany this now. And, And my sister's like, Tiffany could have hundreds of siblings out there. And like that thought had never, hadn't even crossed my mind yet. But then I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I really, I just went from having one half sister to, I don't know how many siblings I have got in the country. So at that point, I already had three sons and (laughs) my sons each share a middle name with a father figure in in our lives. My first son's middle name is Michael after my father-in-law and my husband's middle name. My middle son's middle name is Thomas, which is after uh, my dad, John, his middle name was Thomas. And my third son, his middle name is Kenneth after Ken, my first father. At that moment, I just start thinking about, I've been worried about colon cancer for 36 years and I didn't probably need to be worried about colon cancer. And I've been telling my kids' doctors that, that colon cancer runs in our family and, and it doesn't. And I started thinking about like every time I had a baby and people would comment and say, oh, I see Ken in him or, oh, I see Harold. That was Ken's father. Or just all these things that people say because when a child is born, you're always looking for that similarity, that genetic component. It's just, it's natural. I mean, it just... It is. And so you're looking for who's got, whose eyes are those and where did those ears come from? And I felt like I had been lying to everyone for my whole life and for my son's whole lives, even though I didn't know any of this. 
immediately went home, immediately ordered an ancestry DNA test. John, who raised me, had never wanted me to know the truth. He knew the truth, but he had never wanted me to know the truth. And he was really upset when my mom did tell me because he knew my personality super well. He knew that I would immediately go home and order a DNA test and that this would become like my life mission, that I would not rest until I had every single answer I could get my hands on. And he didn't want me to know because he had a cousin who was adopted and she became consumed in her life with finding her biological parents and she never found the answer. And she became an alcoholic and just she had a really lot of, of trials and tribulations in her life that I think he knew were in some way connected to this mystery that she could not solve. And he did not want that for me. And I remember my mom saying, well, but but John, her father is an Emory University student. And my dad was like, Barbara, he could still turn out to be, you know, a terrible person. <laughs> you know, we don't, we don't know what you're going to find. We don't know if you're going to find them. And if you do find them, are they a good person? And what, what is the ending for this going to be like? So as soon as I got the test, I spit into it. I sent it back same day you know, waited weeks just hitting refresh on the results. And it was a difficult time because I was praying in those days, please, please, God, please let me be Ken's daughter. Please let me be Harold's granddaughter. Please let Mary Alice be my grandmother. Because that's been 35, 36 years of your narrative. That's been your identity. So much of that had formed who I was the biological father who died when I was young. I mean, it was a repeated theme throughout my writing in college. They didn't let me be an art major, so I became an English literature major. And so I did a lot of writing. And, and even in the last few years, I've found a lot of what I wrote in those days. And a lot of it was about how I had this father who died, how I had this biological father who I didn't get to know, and just how that had shaped me throughout my life. I never drank. I never did drugs. I never smoked. And, and I was like really a goody two shoes rule follower, which I'm not saying I wish I hadn't been, but a lot of that was because I had had this absent father figure, this absent biological father figure. And I felt like I owed it to this person to be the best that I could be. And to find out that your actual biological father is not dead. I mean, it just, it, it already required a lot of rewriting of who I was. So I was just praying I was going to get these results and find out that they'd gone home, they'd been intimate, and it had finally worked for them. So the day that I opened up the Ancestry app and actually got my results, the first thing I noticed was that I had two half-brothers <laughs> And that right there was confirmation, like, all right, I'm not Ken's biological daughter. And, you know, I had to break that news to my mom too. And I think for her, it was also a moment of heartbreak because that was the final proof to her that, okay, he really is gone. And that's disappointing to know that so many people have sort of seen you as this continuing vessel for this person who's no longer with us. And to feel like you yourself are a bit of a disappointment because you're not actually that person that everyone thought you were or wanted you to be if they knew the truth. I immediately started Googling the names of these half-brothers. John's fear came true. Tiffany became consumed. But that's part of the journey when this discovery becomes your truth. She contacted one of the half-brothers she was able to determine was also donor-conceived, but he never responded. Then she figured out he has a sister and is unsure if the sister knows she's donor conceived. That's often how these stories go. Even if not donor conceived, the misattribution appears to come in groups. So how did Tiffany know this sister is donor conceived? I know she is because she's the blonde version of me, which is really, really super freaky to, to see that in another person, especially when you have sort of dealt with identity issues or, or self-image issues to see another woman who looks just like you, it, it's validating in a way like, wait, I'm not deformed. I'm not 
defective. You know, this is another person that has these same features as myself. And um, so the other name, the name on Ancestry was Alex B. Jones. And my first thought was, oh my gosh, is this someone who's obsessed with like InfoWars, Alex Jones? You know, how am I gonna, how am I gonna narrow down who this guy is? And Alex Jones turns out is a very common name. So I've hit a dead end. But I did a little more tinkering around on Ancestry that weekend and I clicked on Alex's profile and I saw that he had a partial family tree. And there were a good many members, the more immediate members that were marked as private, which you can do on Ancestry if you haven't noted that someone has passed away. But I noticed that some of the older great-grandfathers had the name Lewis Bevel Jones. And there was a whole line of them going back, you know, the third, the second, whatever. And so I thought, well, what if, huh, Bevel, that's kind of an interesting name. That must be a family name. What if Alex B. Jones stands for Alex Bevel Jones? So I put it into Google and immediately this guy comes up on LinkedIn and I was like falling off the couch because it was me as a guy. (laughs) And even my husband was like, oh, that is definitely, definitely your brother. And so the next thought was, well, is this a, a donor baby, as I like to call us? Or is this the real deal? And as I looked on his LinkedIn profile, I noticed there was something about owning a sandwich shop in the Emory University Village. So I thought, oh, well, that's kind of interesting because he's got Emory here on his his profile. I Googled Lewis Bevel Jones because I thought, well, that was a that was a family name. I wonder what I'm gonna get when I get that. And Lewis Bevel Jones came up with a whole bunch of obituaries because Alex, it turned out that Alex's grandfather was a prominent United Methodist Church bishop in the in the Atlanta area. And he had sadly passed away just several weeks before I took my DNA test. The obituaries were a gold mine of information because I was easily able to figure out who his children were and that Alex was a grandchild. And so from that, I figured out that Bishop Bevel Jones had two sons and one was named David and one was named Mark. And the other interesting thing was that Bevel Jones, Lewis Bevel Jones had gone to Emory University. So I'm starting to think like, wait, there's so many Emory connections here. Donor guy was supposedly an Emory student. I feel like maybe you know, this is this is the jackpot and not just another person in my situation. So I look up David and he was a United Methodist minister. And I was thinking, well, that would be very odd for someone to go on into the ministry and to have been donating sperm. Like, I'm not sure that that makes sense to me. That seems just a little, a little much. But David had gone to Emory. So then I looked up Mark and there was just something about his picture that I felt like a snap or a spark. And it turned out that Mark was an artist and I start to get choked up whenever I get to that part because that was what I'd been looking for. He was an artist. He was a... He's a graphic artist and he was a retired art teacher and he had never been to Emory University. He was never a student at Emory University. So I was like, well, that doesn't quite check out, but it would make more sense to me that someone that was in art school and a little more unconventional and, and I really knew before I knew, like before I I did a little more digging that 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 had to be my dad. And it turned out that Alex was Mark's son. And I mean, I knew as soon as I looked at his picture, he was my biological father because the features that don't look like my mom, I saw them in him. And that was just another moment of, oh my gosh, you know, that's that's the answer to everything. That's the answer to this stranger that I would sometimes see in the mirror that just didn't look like I was supposed to look. But I did look like I was supposed to look. I was thinking like, oh my gosh, how lucky am I? I have narrowed this down within the first weekend of getting these these results. That's like, you know, needle in a haystack that that happens. And then I thought, oh, this is going to be the perfect family. Like if anybody 
is going to have a warm welcome. It's going to be the person that was a donor whose dad was a Methodist bishop and whose whose um, brother is a Methodist minister. I got into like, I must know everything mode, just like my dad knew I would. My bio dad, Mark, and I both Star Wars fanatics. That was another thing where no one else in my family gave a hoot about Star Wars, but by golly, I was sitting there drawing all weekend while watching, you know, the original trilogy on repeat. And, you know, Mark's got all these pictures of himself superimposed over the face of Darth Vader or Luke Skywalker and so many things, even their political beliefs lined up with my own. Whereas I was more liberal (laughs) in a family of conservatives. I was raised a Presbyterian, but I always felt this sort of pull toward the Methodist church and actually became a Methodist when I became an adult and and kind of on my own. And so everything about myself that has ever seemed a little bit different or not quite fitting in with the rest of my family, it's over here with these people. And that, that was such an incredible yet mysteriously odd feeling to see yourself recognize recognize yourself in new ways in these complete strangers that you've never had anything to do with. So I'm thinking like, wow, this is going to be the best case scenario of best case scenarios. Like this is overall pretty crappy situation. I am definitely not happy that this is where I'm finding myself at 36, you know, having having learned that essentially my parents were telling me this incredible lie for my entire life and having lost this genetic connection to these people that I genuinely love, but I'm going to make lemonade out of this. And, and we could make, maybe there can be some sort of happy ending here. So I don't, I don't wait around. I'm very much like, let's just go for it. So I (laughs) immediately wrote a lengthy letter to Mark In that letter, Tiffany included photos of herself throughout her life so he could possibly see the similarities in their features too. Having always wanted a daughter to add to her brood of three sons, Tiffany found herself dreaming of his reaction to having a daughter, hoping it works in her favor when he receives the letter. It was nerve-wracking waiting for him to get the letter. And he finally gets the letter and give it a couple days and I get a text message and it says, Hey, Tiffany, this is Mark working some things out with my family, but we will, we'll work something out to get together soon. So, you know, I was like, yes, yes, this is happening. This is awesome. A couple days after that, I get a letter from him in the mail and I was like, Oh, that's definitely not a good sign. You know, the, there's no way this is working out if I'm suddenly getting a letter. So the letter in a nutshell said, you know, this has been very hard on my family. My wife always knew that I was a donor, but she never liked it. I had never told my sons and understandably they're shocked. And he said it would hurt his family too much if he met me. And that essentially gave me a little bit of history, medical wise, this, that, and the other, and ended it with, we'll see each other in in a better world. And I'm thinking, no, that is not okay. I I cannot accept that you clearly wanted to meet me and I'm just getting written off like this. And especially the the see you in heaven part, you know, because I'm still coming from this perspective of life is short and you never know what's going to happen. You know, whether he was my biological father or not, I've already lost a father figure to cancer. And you know, carpe diem, I'm not taking no for an answer. So I wrote a very respectful letter back and just sort of point counterpointed everything he said in his letter. I'm an attorney, by the way. So he he was worried that, or his family was worried that, you know, I'm one of many. And now these floodgates have been opened. And I just kept thinking like, on the one hand, yeah, that's true. I am one of many, but that's not my fault. And on the other hand, your son took a DNA test and he's on ancestry for all the world to see and you know now that he knows the truth if he doesn't want to be found he can always opt out of dna sharing but that doesn't mean someone's not going to still find you so i wrote back to him and he read my letter and called me he called me on the phone and 
said, all right, you know, I'm done with the tears. I want to meet you. I saw the most recent Star Wars story, Star Wars movie the other week. And I was thinking about you and, and I was wondering if, if you'd seen it. And clearly he'd been thinking about me. And, and so we decided we were going to meet and we met for lunch a few weeks after that. And just instant chemistry. Like we sat there for three hours talking nonstop. And it was just so bizarre to be sitting across the table from this man who actually looked just like me. Um, really just amazing. And we talked about anything and everything. And he was so easy to talk to and charismatic. And he was already saying stuff like, you know, I, I think you're beautiful. And for the first time in my life, that was someone saying it and I actually believed it. I don't know why. It just meant it meant more. And to have that come from this biological father, it was really, I don't know, it seemed to heal part of myself that had been hurting for so long. We started texting a lot and we would talk on the phone a lot and we were meeting for lunch every six weeks or so. And every time we met, it was just three hour conversations and we were each other's Facebook friend and Instagram friend. And I got back into art. I hadn't done art for, gosh, almost 20 years since my parents had sort of put the kibosh on going to art school. I, I just gave it up and I started again. And I found that I was every bit as good, if not better, than I had been when I stopped 20 years ago. And Mark told me, like, you are talented. You, you have such talent. And I can't believe your parents didn't let you pursue this. And he was kind of angry about it, I think, that they had not allowed that. And we just had so much in common. And it was just so easy to talk. And he told me, you know, eventually, after we'd been meeting and, and getting lunch together, I met his wife. And, and he met my husband. And my husband and his wife met. And it just, it seemed like it was going wonderfully. It was going so wonderfully, in fact, that Mark confided he came to think of her as one of the kids he raised, but that he didn't feel that way about any of Tiffany's other siblings. In fact, he separated even further from them by referring to them as offspring with no interest in meeting them, which immediately made her uncomfortable. And that made me feel a little uncomfortable because at that point, no others had popped up. And I had actually, as a courtesy to him, hidden myself on any of the DNA sites because I knew he didn't want to be found. And so that was sort of my trade-off. And I felt bad about it because part of me always was wondering throughout all this, well, are there more siblings that are showing up as I'm meeting with him? And he told me, you know, I, I feel closer to you than I do with one of my sons. And I talk to you more often and I see you more often and I can just see you barbecuing with the family. And, and just, it felt so good and so nice and then there were also times where he would say, oh, I want to give your kids X, Y, Z. And I would say, no, 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 no. I think, I think we should maybe not do that. But we clearly felt very close to each other. For what it's worth, I'll say, you know, I didn't, I didn't talk to my dad, John, about this a lot because I didn't want to hurt his feelings. But of course, he knew that I was meeting with Mark and he was happy for me. About a year after I'd met Mark, my dad, John, actually was diagnosed with cancer himself. He was diagnosed with lung cancer. So... Right before that happened, Mark had arranged for me to meet his oldest son, Alex, who was the one that I had figured it all out from. And Alex and I both work in, in state government and we actually had a lot in common and both work downtown. So we met for lunch downtown and we got along pretty well. And, you know, it was, it was another one of those strange moments where it's like, oh, I'm sitting across from this guy and he's genetically my brother and this is kind of weird. And he kept saying, man, you look just like my dad. And he would laugh about it. And he said, you know, it, if my mom is cool with you being around and, and him knowing you, I don't know why any of the rest of us would have a problem. And the issue was that Mark actually didn't tell his sons until a year after we'd been getting lunch that he had decided to meet me. And so when he finally had arranged for me to meet Alex, he had also only just told Alex that for a year now, I've been getting lunch with this girl that you thought that I blew off with a letter a year ago. And when he told his sons that, Alex was okay with it. But Charles, the middle son, 
still couldn't wrap his head around the fact that I was still around and that I had some interest in meeting Mark and, and if possible, meeting any of the rest of them. And I guess at some point the question was thrown out of whether I was looking for money or whether my kid needed a kidney. And, and which when I heard that, I was like, that is just so insulting. Uh, no, but if you need a kidney, I would gladly give you one of my own. Really? That's your first thought? Okay. So after Alex met me, it was right before Mother's Day weekend. And so their family went up to a lake house for Mother's Day weekend. So they were all there together, all the sons and Mark and his wife. And I immediately knew something was wrong when Mark didn't text me Happy Mother's Day. At some point, I would like to study the intuitive nature of MPE to learn not just the prevalence rate, but the development of it. Does the inalienable bond of biology engender a stronger sense of intuition? True to her suspicion, Mark began pulling away, saying some feelings had come up for his kids, particularly the youngest son, whom they told that weekend that dad had been a sperm donor and then that dad had been hanging out with one of the offspring for a year. His daughters-in-law were jealous that I had been getting lunch with him for the past year when they had never been to lunch with him, which I was like, I've been married to my husband for you know, 13 years now, and I've never once been to lunch with my father-in-law. So it doesn't seem that odd to me, but okay. My dad had not been diagnosed at that point yet, but like he was in bad shape. And so I knew something was going on with him. And so I was already in a rough place. And I just said, you know, please, please don't, don't break up with me essentially. Like, you know, this, I'm already in a rough place right now. Like I can't handle that. And he said, I promise you, I'm not breaking up with you. And he was getting ready to go out of town. And the next day or a day after I got a text from him saying, we're about to go out of town. Uh, you know, we're not going to get into this right now, but I promise you that we will talk again when the time is right. And I'll be in touch in a few weeks when I'm back in town. A few weeks went by, really didn't hear from him. Then my dad got diagnosed with cancer. And it was a, I texted him to let him know that. I said, you know, hey, I, I hope you've been okay. I just want to let you know my dad has been diagnosed with cancer. And it was that same day that I noticed all of a sudden that his wife had blocked me on Facebook. So I knew something has changed here and it's not a, it's not going to end well. He didn't respond to me telling him, texting him that my dad had cancer. And a few days after that, I wake up and at about one in the morning, he had sent me an email saying, that this was the final chapter. We would no longer be in any form of communication, that he had hurt his family and that that was the most important thing to him. And he would no longer be responding to me and he wished me a happy life and proceeded to block me on every possible part of the internet. Right about the time Mark was cutting Tiffany off, John passed away only a handful of months after his diagnosis. A few months after that, Tiffany's grandmother from her first father also passed. This triggered an avalanche of loss she felt unequipped to handle. Luckily, her mom came to the rescue. You know, now I'm, I'm dealing with all these losses and my mom did reach out to Mark. She actually looked him up because she was so worried about me after my grandmother died and wanted him to know that she thought... I, I had finally told her kind of everything that had gone down and she wanted him to know that the way he had ended things with me was just really unfair. And it was nice because my mom, you know, was in my corner. She was very supportive of me having a relationship with him and just knowing that she wasn't okay with, with how he had treated me because it sort of felt like I was alone there for a while. So after that, he texted me and basically said that he was very sorry for all my losses, but it certainly wasn't him opening the door back up again to communication because although he unblocked me briefly on Facebook... I got reblocked after I tried to reach out to a first cousin of his on 23andMe who had previously been open to sort of giving me tidbits of family history, then felt the need to ask Mark's permission to continue communicating with me. And after that cousin asked for permission, Mark, I guess, said no. And that cousin said that he wouldn't be speaking to me anymore either. And then Mark blocked me again. 
And so since then, there have been other first cousins of his who have seemed interested in communicating with me. But I guess after they hear what happened with this other first cousin or after they speak to Mark, I basically get the cold shoulder and the door shut. And they all live in the same area as me. We have Facebook friends that are in common. I've got one of the daughters of one of Mark's first cousins actually grew up with my best friend from law school and she won't return my messages on 23andMe. And really at the point where I don't reach out to people anymore, if someone reaches out to me on Ancestry, I'm always afraid that I'm going to get burned if I tell them the story. But I'm very actually genuinely interested in my Ancestry and, and who my biological ancestors actually are because... That was something that was fascinating to me before I knew the truth, and it's no different now. Tiffany's interest in ancestry and genealogy is typical of most MPE. Often the unofficial but ardent family historians, MPE are eager to research and collect information before the discovery. So reaching out to the various cousins and Mark's sister, Tiffany's biological aunt, was a natural extension of seeking uh, belonging and satisfying the genealogical bewilderment triggered from the MPE discovery. Unfortunately, they all felt a sense of loyalty to Mark's wishes and shut her out. I wonder what would have happened if they thought for themselves. Well, I I try to explain it to myself in a way that I can accept it. Because as I've told my own therapist, it is easier for me to accept that I have had two father figures who have died and to accept that I have a biological father who lives 30 miles down the road, whose path I could cross at any point, who looks like me and shares traits with me, shares traits with my sons, but has chosen not to have anything to do with me. And I don't know what the whole story is with this family. I feel guilty at times even telling my side of the story because I know in a sense it's incomplete. But then on the other hand, I would never treat someone the way that I have been treated. And the very least I wanted was to just be able to keep going to lunch with him. If I never met the rest of his family, that would have been fine. But I also don't feel like I should be shunned or my kids should be shunned. I mean, I hope to one day be able to go to larger family reunions and be able to revel in what is my family history too and my son's family history because I'm not going to lie to them. It's unethical and it's a burden that I don't want to carry and I don't want them to carry. My mom is really into genealogy, which I think is another reason why she told me finally, because she felt the guilt of not knowing what my real maiden name would have been and adding things to my family tree and knowing that it wasn't really true. Synchronicities continue to happen in MPE stories, much to my delight. Tiffany found a half-brother on the Ancestry website the day after John died, deciding not to hide herself for Mark's benefit any longer. The day after John died, Mark had already cut me off and and I was, you know, in the depths of grief over my dad having just died and I pull up Ancestry and oh my God, there's a new brother name. And this is the first one that's popped up since, because after Mark broke up with me, that's how I put it. I said, well, screw this. I'm not hiding myself on the DNA sites anymore. You know, I'm coming back. And that's when I started trying to engage with some of these other cousins that eventually that you know, Mark shut the door on, on those efforts. But I was at that point thinking, well, if I can't have a connection to Mark, I'm going to try and find new siblings. And also thinking like, if no one's going to answer my questions, I'm going to know more than anyone's going to tell any new siblings in the future. And I'm their source of information now. I have the identity, I have the pictures, and I can maybe answer some questions for them that they may not be able to get answered. He lives three minutes away. He lives in the next town over. And I have three boys and he has two boys and our boys fall right in line with each other age-wise. And we hit it off immediately. I look like him. He looks like me. We were talking about how we you know, lived in the same areas at different parts of our childhood in the Atlanta area. How he said at one point, God, it's a good thing we never dated each other. Just because, you know, he's he's 11 months younger than me. We never went to the same school, but it's not without the, outside the realm of possibility that our paths would have crossed at some point. Since then, I mean, we we just hit it off. I mean, his wife and I are great friends now. He's friends with my husband. They're in our quarantine bubble. Like we've spent more time with them than anyone else in the last year. And that has been the saving grace of all of this for me is that at least I have got this this brother now that is so awesome and who I have so much in common with. And 
he, as soon as he heard how things had gone down with Mark, he was like, oh, I have no interest in even trying to meet this guy. Hearing what he did to you, no thank you. So that, that's not been an issue for him. He's, he's not as curious as I, as I am. And I found that to be the case largely with the other donor-conceived siblings because there's the, the other half-brother that showed up as soon as I got my results initially and he's never responded to me. Brad reached out to him. He's never written back to Brad. So he's either in denial or he just doesn't care. And then this past March, like right after we all started quarantining, a new half-brother popped up on 23andMe. And he sent me a message and said, hey, I don't understand this. I don't know why you're showing up as a half-sister. What's going on? And I said, well, I think you should ask your parents. We texted back and forth and I said, well, did your, did your mom have, have anything to say? And he said, no, she doesn't know why you're showing up as a half-sister. And I was like, look, Look, bud. <laughs> I think maybe we should talk on the phone. And I told him, you know, I was donor conceived, and I am ninety nine percent sure that you are also donor conceived. I mean, he he thought at first that maybe his dad was the donor, and or that it was a, an affair or something. And I was like, no, you know, I I looked you up on Facebook or something. I, mean, I looked him up. I looked him up the same night he popped up, and dead ringer once again. We all look so much like. Mark that it's just undeniable. I mean, he lo- and he's got pictures of himself photoshopped like on Luke Skywalker's face. You know, we've all got this weird Star Wars obsession in in certain ways. There's just so many different things about all of us that I can see have come from Mark. And that was the only time I spoke to him. He, I don't know if he ever talked to his mom about everything. He was concerned about that. And I sent him a text message a few days after we talked because I knew he was kind of going through this shock and it was locked down and you know you can't even go to a bar to get a drink and you're not hanging out with friends. And so I was thinking, geez, this is just a horrible time to have this news sprung on you and just wanted to see if he was okay. And he said, yeah. And I said, well, you know, I've got pictures if you ever want to see him. And all he did was ask me the name of the donor and I told him and he just said, thank you. And we've not been in contact since. You know, I, I'm not pushing it with him. I figure he knows how to find me if he's ever got more questions. So, I mean, like I said, so far, I'm the only one who's shown genuine interest in sort of getting to know Mark or his family in in any capacity that they can offer. You know, like I'm not expecting to be invited to Thanksgiving or Christmas. That was never my goal. If it happened, it would have been great. But at the very least, I just wanted to keep getting lunch. At the very least, I would have liked to have had a painting or a drawing that Mark did that I could have someday and pass down to my kids because art is such a big part of who I am. I've only recently started doing it again because after he broke up with me, it hurt. It hurt to try to draw. I would end up sobbing sometimes when my oldest son would start doing watercolors because he's inherited this love for art and his gift for it. And, and now I know where it comes from, which is awesome. But now, even just looking in the mirror, I don't know. I know now where my strange features come from. They're not strange anymore. But now instead of seeing a mystery, I'm reminded of Mark every single day when I look in the mirror because I can see his face looking back at me now. And so for a while, being donor conceived was really awesome because I was kind of having an ideal ending where I had this connection with him and things seemed to be going well. But as soon as it took a turn for, I don't want anything else to do with you, don't contact me any ever again, the way he worded it was, I hope you have enough respect for me not to contact me or any members of my family. And all I could think was, where's the respect for me? When asked about her feelings toward Mark now, Tiffany has a very different perspective. I didn't ask to be put in this position. I didn't sign anything saying that you could have confidentiality or anonymity. And this is the, the age of 23 and me and ancestry, you know, that that's gone now. And not only that, but you had a relationship with me for a year, a year. And you can just turn this off with a push of a button. You can just forget that I exist. I don't have that luxury. I'll never have that luxury. And it hurts. It hurts to have been told these amazing, wonderful things by this man and to have this connection with him. And then just all of a sudden, one day, someone else has a problem with the fact you've been having lunch with me. 
that we spent 21 hours together over the course of a year. And somehow that was too much. I don't understand. I don't, I'll never be able to understand the lack of empathy or the ability to put yourself in someone else's position. And I keep thinking how everyone on that side is coming at it from this place of privilege where yes, you have found a surprise relative and yeah, there's more of me out there, but you didn't have your whole identity for your adult life shattered in one day, you know? And and really, I'm not asking for that much in the grand scheme of things. And it really has made me feel almost like I'm biohazard. You know, I'm one of so many. What is dangerous about me? I can't help it that there's an unknown number of me out there. That makes me uncomfortable too. I have for the rest of my life. I don't know how many new siblings are going to pop up on Ancestry. And I don't know how many of them never will pop up that might be sitting next to me in traffic at any given time. And so far, they've all been born in this area. And most of them still live here. Every time I tell myself that it's the last time I'm going to try to reach out to Mark, you know, I feel like the crazy ex-girlfriend. And I hate comparing it to that because it's really not comparable at all. It's not a crazy ex-girlfriend. He's my biological father who had a relationship with me, which is only natural and stopped because other people were jealous. I sent him a card after COVID started because I was worried about him because he's got quite a few things that would make him particularly susceptible. And I just said, I hope that you and your wife are taking care. And then this Christmas, I just sent a, a card addressed to him because I thought the very least you can do is look at this photograph of me and your grandkids that you'll never meet. But I don't, I don't, I don't have any grand illusion anymore that he's going to change his mind. You know, I feel like if there was ever a year that would maybe open someone's heart or mind, it would be the one where we're losing loved ones and friends every other week. And if that's not enough to, to get through to you, that life is short and, you know, be kind, (laughs) be open, have more love in your life and, and less, less animosity, then nothing will. Thanks to Tiffany for sharing her journey. The pain and the power of it are inspiring. Sex, Lies, and the Truth is written and produced by Jody Klugman-Rab and Christina Bryan Fitzgibbons. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, you can contact us through our website at www.sexliesandthetruth.com. If you are a fan of Sex, Lies, and the Truth and want to support us, you can do that through Patreon. Patreon is a really cool platform where fans of shows like ours can pledge a small amount each month, even just a few dollars, to support the show. You can find us there at www.patreon.com forward slash sex lies and the truth.